Hello, and welcome back to Sci Section. I'm your journalist, Amy Stewart, for the Sci Section radio show broadcasted on CFMU 93.3 FM radio station. We're here today with Dr. Lauren Kelly, a professor of pharmacology at the University of Manitoba and a researcher and clinical trial director of pediatric pharmacology. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Kelly. And thank you so much for having me. So to begin, tell us about your educational and career background and how you got started in your field. Sure. So I did an undergraduate degree at Western in basic um, medical sciences. And so that's where I had the opportunity to take a variety of different courses and where I fell in love with toxicology and pharmacology. Uh, I got some experiences in undergrad working in laboratories, uh, and I knew that really wasn't um, the best um, fit for my skills and for my interests and that I really preferred working with humans. And so I got interested in clinical research and in clinical trials. Um, I actually went to the UK to do my master's um, because they had a specific master's in human toxicology. Uh, and so I um, came back to Canada and I started working in the field as a clinical researcher at a hospital in Toronto. Um, and I really got interested in um, furthering my skills as a researcher. And I sort of knew if I ever wanted to do my own research someday, I was going to need a doctorate degree, I was going to need more training. And so I went back to Western uh, and I did a PhD in pharmacology, working on um, clinical research projects around opioid exposures in children. And that um, really solidified sort of my passion for, for child health research um, and led me down a path of, um, I did two postdocs after that, and I taught a little bit at a college and we can maybe chat a little bit more about um, sort of some of those steps. Um, and then I secured an academic appointment um, in September of 2017. So I'm just about five years now into my first academic appointment uh, here at the University of Manitoba. That's an awesome career so far. Uh, it seems like you found your passion pretty early on, um, and it's very impressive that you were willing to move away for a program that you really like. That's, that's very impressive. So for my next question, uh, I wanted to start talking about your research. So you're the scientific director of the Canadian Childhood Cannabinoid Clinical Trials. Can you tell us about what that is and the studies that you are looking to accomplish there? Sure. So C4T uh, is an academic research program. So it's a group now of over 105 uh, physicians, pharmacists, nurses, parents, um, and scientists, and, and we have some youth members as well. And essentially, we're just a grassroots group that came together, identifying a huge gap in knowledge around cannabis products being used for medical reasons um, in children with epilepsy and children with cancer and children with really complex um, health concerns. And so we started in 2018. And we do work alongside now the Canadian Pediatric Society and the the Public Health Agency of Canada and Health Canada um, to provide really a place for researchers to come together and collaborate with, with parents and youth on designing studies to help answer questions about cannabis. And so I think in Canada, you know, it's not a surprise that cannabis is being used a lot um, for medical reasons um, and oftentimes without oversight of a healthcare practitioner. And so we worry about what products are being used, how much is being used, and in what cases is this actually a safe decision and how can we support parents and youth in making these decisions? And so this group, we have a few funded studies right now. We have some funding from the Sick Kids Foundation to look at um, youth with chronic daily headaches. So these are youth that are six months um, at least into treatment already and are refractory to other medications. So this is not 
um, someone's first headache. These are youth who are suffering, who are not in school, who are not able to function because of chronic daily headaches. They have to have more than 15 headache days a month. These are severe cases. And I think that's something um, that we want to also highlight that um, these are complex areas where there's not good evidence for any of the drugs that we use. And so that's kind of how our research program um, started and some of the work that we are up to, we also have a team grant in cancer. So we do a lot of work with families right now, and we have a study upcoming looking at managing symptoms in, in children who um, have been diagnosed with cancer. And so that's really the next study that we're gonna be launching. That is such a great example of academic collaboration. I love to hear how you have had so many researchers and clinicians come together to, like you said, target a gap there's been in, in treatment of uh, children, as well as I think educating people that it's okay to use cannabis products as a, a potential treatment option. Well, I think that's the big question, right, is that we're not really sure that it's okay. And we are looking to answer those questions. And really, we haven't studied cannabis in that way, right? A lot of the literature on cannabis is around recreational use or um, chronic use in adults that might be using for, for pain or might be smoking. Uh, and that's not really what anyone would recommend for, for pediatric and like a medical indication. We know that the CBD has been approved in the US, in Europe, Australia to treat seizures. We know that there's evidence that it can reduce seizures in kids with um, Dravet syndrome and complex epilepsy. And the problem in Canada is that we don't have that drug available. Like you can't buy prescription, you can't get a prescription for CBD in Canada because that drug doesn't exist here. So you have, the only way they can access CBD is through the medical cannabis system, which obviously is not set up for pediatric patients and families. So that's where we're trying to fill the gap with how can we maybe help policymakers too think more about families as they're sort of re revising all of the cannabis legislation here um, to, to both incentivize research, but also, like you said, education, I think is a huge one. Um, and we really are against parents having to get advice about cannabis from Google or storefronts, right? This advice should come from physicians um, and scientists and, and experts in the field. So we really have to bridge that gap for sure. That is great that there's definitely going to be some sound research uh, behind it before parents go and try it for their child. Uh, yeah, that's that's really great to hear. My next question about your research is that your lab also investigates opioid use in pregnancy. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that and how your research is going in that domain? Yeah, so we have I have a couple of different areas and, and obviously the medical canvas and opioids are the two main areas that our lab focuses on. Um, so we've been studying opioid exposures um, in pregnancy for a while and working with families affected by opioid use in pregnancy to identify what outcomes are important for them. Like when we're doing research, what do you want to know and how do you know that your baby is either doing better or worse? And what should we include in research that is important to families? Because everyone has different priorities and we need to make sure that their voices are heard when we're designing research. And so some of the studies we have ongoing um, are using administrative data to look at long-term health outcomes. So trying to tease out babies that are exposed to opioids only versus babies that are exposed to opioids and other substances like nicotine, alcohol, other prescriptions that might influence long-term outcomes. Um, and so we also have a project under review right now that'll be the first observational cohort study in pregnancy. So we're really interested in looking at how opioids transfer to breast milk, um, looking at how we can support breastfeeding and chest feeding in people who are using opioids in pregnancy, and how we 
can better care for infants and how we can better prepare families for once infants are born, they do, there is a likelihood they can develop withdrawal the same way that if you discontinue opioids in an adult um, that's been exposed to opioids, they can develop withdrawal and the same thing um, we know what can happen at birth. And so I think there's not only a lot of research about what babies are more likely to develop withdrawal and how we manage withdrawal, there's actually a lot of science that's missing around like what the actual impact of withdrawal is on the brain, on the newborn, on the neonatal brain and um, different treatment options. So in the States, there's a few other treatment options that we don't have available here in Canada. And it kind of underpins another theme of my research program, which is that we're studying off-label medications um, in some of our smallest and most vulnerable patients. And that's really because we don't have those kinds of formulations approved here. Um, and so my kind of research program and long-term strategy for both of those is really to advocate for some regulatory incentives for, for pediatric drug development. That is, again, another fascinating area of research. I feel like um, the idea of looking at the effects of opioids on uh, infants and um, young children is like pretty unheard of. I feel like people would think that it's kind of counterintuitive to like look at the after effects as opposed to treating the person who has the addiction. But I think it's a lot more of a realistic and helpful way to approach uh, that kind of problem and the outcomes afterwards. For my uh, next question, uh, in all of your research, you investigate topics that affect so many vulnerable communities, like we just talked about mothers, fetuses, people who are addicted to drugs. Uh, what are some challenges you face when you're designing clinical trials and studies for these people? Um, I mean, there, there's all kinds of tr challenges. And I, I would say that I, I don't know that they're necessarily specific um, to some of the populations I work with. I think that representing patient voices um, in clinical trial design is a bit of a shift for all trialists, I think, in just, you know, not no longer is it acceptable to just have, you know, one person, one patient tell you that your trial is a good idea. We're really looking at actual methods for like, how do we integrate multiple voices of different and diverse backgrounds that are affected, right? No more is it just like that one patient partner that every team has that does all the advising, but how to meaningfully do that. And so we recently set up a um, patient advisory group um, for our opioids in pregnancy um, project and even just things like how do we pay people and well not everyone has a fixed address and so not everyone can accept a check and some people may require pickup or drop off and just being flexible with how we approach um, administrative policies and pushing back on a lot of the things that have been set up um, that aren't conducive to sort of the more modern world. So a lot of administrative policies have been in place for a long time before things like virtual gift cards and, um, you know, e-transfers were really possible. And so I think challenging some of the systems around how we compensate and engage with these communities um, is really something that has been kind of a, pa a side passion uh, project as we've been doing some of this work. And then, of course, you know, making sure that everyone feels safe um, and is protected. Um, so things like, you know, instead of signing a letter of support individually, they can sign it as a group or um, those kinds of things, just trying to kind of learn it as we go and really listen more maybe than we decide, I think would be probably my best advice for working with, with vulnerable populations is if you're, you know, if you're not listening more than you're talking, then you're probably doing it wrong. That is some very good advice. I also like how you mentioned um, it applies to all clinical trials, like you're setting a precedent by um, being a more accessible and flexible as opposed to just offering these options to people uh, in these vulnerable groups because you don't always know what's going on in someone's personal situation. 
And the end of the day, clinical trials are only going to answer meaningful questions if we can recruit the people and keep them in the trial to collect the data, right? So if we're not designing good trials that are meaningful to the people involved, what incentivizes them to stay in our trials and to give us their information? Participating in clinical trials is a huge burden, right? They were asking for data all the time, sometimes daily in our studies. And so, you know, I just think that we need to do a better job. And I think that whether they're vulnerable or not, this applies to really everyone. That's very exciting to see research that is done in such an ethical and considering way um, and taking into account that the people we're getting the data from are the most important part of the study. Uh, it's not just the data we get from them, but how we treat them is very important. For my last question, uh, I want to know, what is some advice that you would offer to your undergraduate self? I mean, a lot of our viewers are undergraduate students who wish to pursue a career potentially similar to yours. So what would you yeah. offer advice to yourself about? I think I would say that you don't have to work in a wet lab. Like all science isn't mice experiments. And, um, you know, if bench work is not for you, there is still a huge potential um, for you to be involved in science. And I think that's something I wish that I knew earlier because I was fortunate to have a lecture by someone that I stalked after class to then find out about working with because that was the first time I heard someone say oh we look at this in human hair and that's how we're answering this question and I thought oh wait so I could work with people and I think that that's something undergraduate students maybe don't necessarily get a lot of exposure to that there's a whole like hospitals research institutes we all hire clinical research associates research coordinators um, that get to be patient facing, that get to, you know, design recruitment materials and work on communications. And so I think there's a lot of um, sort of, I think I would tell, tell myself to sort of trust that, that I could do a career, that I could find a different path that could still have me contributing to a field in a meaningful way, but that was better suited to my skills and interests. So I think my best advice would be, yes, move, move overseas, move towns. Um, that's another piece of good advice is to just trust your gut. And if you find something that you're passionate about, um, make that, make that path work for you. That is some very good advice. I think you make a great uh, great point. I feel like a lot of students feel like they have to pick between the MD route and the research route because they fear if they become a researcher, they won't be patient facing. Like you said, it's has that more stereotypical, always in the lab secluded kind of um, vibe. Yeah, and that's not the case. I mean, our team works virtually too, right? Lots, there's a lot of my team doesn't live where I live, right? And so now with the pandemic too, I think that's opening up to a lot more remote working options, um, which can hopefully give people also that maybe in like not clinical research environments or more rural remote settings, the opportunity to participate in some of these careers too. So hopefully we see some decentralization happen in the next few years. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Kelly. It was so great to hear about all of those difficult questions that you're answering um, and how you're prioritizing ethical science and ethical research. Uh, I think you make a great role model for so many students out there uh, and other researchers who wish to follow in your footsteps. Well, thank you so much for inviting me and I'm happy to chat anyone with anyone who's interested. Um, you can find me online and hopefully you can share my, my contact info. That's it for this week of SciSection. I'm your host, Amy Stewart, and check out our website, Humans and Science, and our podcast platforms to hear our latest interviews.